Sorry, I would go. Ah, Constable, I demand that you arrest the driver of that 100 ton anthracite filled reciprocating engine steamroller. Well, let's hear the charge. I'll play it for you. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I want you to arrest the driver of that steamroller. Oh, well, well, right now, where's the driver? Sapristin Yuckles! <laughs> Who wants to know? I am the man! Now then, this gentleman here says that you're the driver of the steamroller, sir. So do I. That makes two of us! Constable, <laughs> arrest the driver! I have witnesses! Who are they? You and me! You can't arrest me! And why not? Why? <laughs> what? See that plate on the steamroller? See the letters on it? CD. Oh, blimey. No, call diplomatique. <laughs> I have diplomatic immunity. Get me out of here. Call that doctor. Welcome to GoonPod. My name's Tyler Adams. Uh, this is the podcast in which me and some guests look back at our favourite goon shows and also the goons themselves. Now, this week, my guest is the writer and podcaster, John Rain, host of the mega popular Pod. And as you join the conversation, I've just asked John if he's been to see No Time to Die yet. I've seen it twice now. First time I was really angry when I left the cinema. I didn't like it at all. Right. Second time, I removed the idea that it was a Bond film, and I really enjoyed it. Mm. It's the same sort of problem I have with most Craig films, is that they're not Bond films in a traditional sense, and that he's not, he doesn't really, I don't know, he's just, I don't want to go all not my Bond, but he just doesn't, the films aren't structured to be like Bond films, and they're just, this one's uh, takes it up to the next level. And I did, I did enjoy it a second time a bit more, but I've got a lot of problems mm-hmm. with it, and I'm going to, get into that at some point okay and you also do um uh, a doctor who podcast which is a, a mm. wheezing groaning sound i'm guessing yes. that's the sound that tardis makes is that right it is when it was first written in the script it said it arrives with a wheezing groaning sound ah, okay there's, there's got to be at least half a dozen doctor who podcasts out there um no no, no this is the your... only doctor who podcast in existence is it yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> okay. i do it with paul litchfield and tom neenan and um We've been doing that was kind of a savior on lockdown, among other things. But we, I think we'd only done like two or three. No, we'd done about four or five in studio. And then the work, we, I remember being in a pub after one of the recordings with Paul, and the news behind his shoulder when we were sitting in the pub had that yellow ticker saying coronavirus has taken, you know, has gone mad in China and Italy. And I remember, I remember saying to him, This feels kind of like the end of the world. And um, it was. And then we've done the majority of them since then, apart from a live show we did a few weeks ago, um, over, over the internet. So it's a very odd thing. Listen, will you ask Paul to get the trap back together? Uh, I think it's out of his hands. Is it? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell him, though. I'll tell him. I've only ever seen um, Series 2 and part of Series 3 of Doctor Who. Well, so William, <laughs> William Hartnell... Yeah, because wow. a friend of mine insists that it's the most pure. His his uh, his doctor is the most pure, and oh. and it really kicks in from series two. You chop him up, so, and you can um, smoke. You can sniff him. He's the purest. 
<laughs> and you can snort yes. him. <laughs> I still think back fondly. I watched, um, I must have watched Planet of Giants mm. about eight times with the with the big, huge insects and yeah, we did that matchbox. One. Yeah, with the, the, when they have the the hanging around the giant dead man. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> Smithers. Smithers. That's right. Yeah, yeah, Something we did like that. that one. Yeah, yeah, I should point out yeah. that although Hartnell is the purist, um, by the time you get to Sylvester McCoy, there's it's been liberally mixed with flour and baking soda. <laughs> so it's not quite as. Uh, potent as it once was <laughs> yes and also i see that you've got because you've, you've had a book out already called uh, thunderbook oh. which is kind of the, a, a spin-off i guess from smash yes. um and but you've got a new book coming out soon i have it's probably be out but it'll be i'll start again probably be out by the time you've heard this that's called exploder book and it's about i did a series on 80s action movies uh which mm-hmm. ironically um sort of sizzled out rather uh, prematurely but yeah, so I, my publisher said, do you want to do another book? And what would you like to do about this? And I said, yes. So I just picked mm-hmm. 20 action movies from the 80s and just wrote about them. But it's out on the 21st of October, which is probably by gone by the time you've heard this. And it's yeah. available from all good bookshops and some bad ones too. Mm. Do you cover Tango and Cash? Yes. yes. Tango and Cash, Red Heat, Commando, Mad Max 2, Top Gun, yeah. Aliens. It goes on and on. Raw deal? No, raw deal, isn't it? Because I was getting a bit Arnie heavy, so I had to sort of drop yeah. one, and I replaced it with Action Jackson, the Carl Weathers film. Okay. Yeah, so All it's right. a bit, yeah, it's a bit higgledy-piggledy, but it was fun to write. And I've also got Invasion USA in there by Chuck Norris. Have you got a third book in mind already? Yes. Care to uh, care to share? Uh, I'm thinking something along the lines of maybe like a sequel to Exploder Book, but we delve into 90s action. Oh well, in which case, God, you've got it's going to be full of Nicolas Cage. It's going to be Con Air and um, there's a particular Nicolas Cage couple in there, yeah. Mm, but there's yeah. also there's also Terminator Two, and you got Robocop Two, Point Break. Yeah. There are a few good ones in there. Great. Okay. So obviously, this podcast, as I always say, this podcast is about the Goon Show. Yes. Now you're slightly younger than me, but you were born in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm going to. The same, the same thing tends to come up time and time again when I speak to people of, of my sort of generation. Mm. So I'm allow me to be sort of um, uh, Mystic Meg mm-hmm. for a minute, and and and, and I'm going to suggest that probably your dad introduced you to the Goon Show. Is that right? Uncanny, yes. <laughs> That's what everyone yeah. says. Yeah, <clears throat> my dad had an extensive um, comedy record collection, so we had lots of Goon records, lots of Hancock couple around the horn and also things we had loads of will hay films as well and things like that lots of old comedy but the goons as a child particularly was just just perfect for me at that age mm. uh, i'm talking about when i was about six or seven my dad used to put them on and we'd all just sort of sit there laughing the silly voices yep. but i was also very into sellers from an early age because of the pink panther films um, yes and also my dad sometimes would watch Q. I used to right. watch that with him too. So I was a bit into Sellers and Milligan without really knowing what they were and what they would go on to do or anything like that. But it was all very rooted in the goons. So so you would have been aware of the, the Q series by the time you would have seen it would have been the the very sort of late period. Yeah, they were. I think they were repeated in the um, sort of early 80s well, like i don't know when exactly but i remember them being on and my dad taping them and i remember particularly there's an episode where there's an 
identity parade where David Lodge. God, what's his? Yeah, thank you, David Lodge. There's an old lady picking out people, and he constantly picks her up and throws her to the floor. Right. She, she doesn't pick him out once. Um, that's just something that's always stuck with me from the old queue, and obviously the highly offensive ones I won't go into. Oh yeah, well, David Lodge had his uh, had, had his own catchphrase in queue, which was "I was in Cockleshell Heroes," don't you know? You are wrong again. Why don't you read the Radio Times? Then you'll know who I am. Cunine, Quinine. Starring Spine Milligan, Sweeney Blood, John Blugel, and, 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 <laughs> Dave, Dave Lodge. Right. And remember, yeah. I was in Cockleshell Heroes. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've seen, I don't know if you've seen Cockleshell Heroes. I haven't, but it's funny because the David Lodge connection goes right back to the, the war, doesn't it? Because he was, yes, he hung around with Sellers, didn't yes. he? He was, and Graham. What was Sellers' nickname was Golden Balls, wasn't it? Because yes, was it was. Yes, it was. Yeah, constantly getting into scrapes, and um, we're not getting, not even getting into scrapes, just doing stuff and getting away with it, like stealing petrol. Yep. And and then there's that story. I don't know if it's true or not, but the one where he put talcum powder in his hair, put on an officer's uniform and went into the mess. Yes. And they say he was undetected and got away with it, but I find that hard to believe. Yeah. There's, I'm, I'm sure there's a certain amount of embellishment there. Um, if, mm. if you've seen, I don't know if you've seen the goon film from 52. Down Among the Z-Men. Yeah. And he plays, yeah. um, well, he plays, is it Colonel Bloodnock? Yes. That? Um, I, I picture him like that. You know, and I could kind of see him getting away with it, I suppose. It's the the, the, the funny caper stories I like about Sellers, and the, um, and that all um, that's where the goons comes in perfectly because it plays to Milligan's incredible imagination. Yes, it plays to Harry Seacombe's chance to shout and scream and be hyperactive, and it plays to Sellers's box of voices that he's able to just pour out all over the place. And Harry Seacombe always used to say that of the three of them, Sellers was the most supremely confident. And in as much as he never he never seemed to suffer from stage fright or anxiety. And I guess you need that kind of chutzpah, don't you, if you're going to be impersonated? Well, you do. I mean, I think out of, out of all of them, I think Sellers is the only one that had a mother who thought he was the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. And um, kept telling him he was going to be a star. So you will believe that. Yeah, because you know he famously was an only child, wasn't he? Although technically he wasn't, because That's right. he's got his. Was he a twin? No, he was. A, they had a child first who died, called Peter. Yeah, called Peter, and then they had another child and called him Peter. Well, no, his his actual name was Richard Henry Sellers. You're right, um, yeah. but then for some reason everyone started calling him Peter, which is creepy as hell. Mm, yeah, and then Think his mother it. had this story about him being related to the bare knuckle boxer Mendoza. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so there's just all this kind of thing going on. Whereas um, Milligan had a dad who was eccentric, mm-hmm. but came from that imperialistic background, uh, and um, Seacum was just from a normal kind of family background. With but it's just it's interesting with Sellers because, as you say, he didn't he didn't suffer from that stage fright thing, and I well believe it because. Why would you if you've got someone all, telling you all the time you're the greatest thing since sliced bread? That's right. Yeah. I'd say for the three of them, the Goon Show was, well, it, I would say 
certainly for Seacom and for Milligan, the Goon Show was their most successful creative project or creative yes. uh, uh, undertaking. Um, maybe not so much for sellers, I suppose, if you look at Strange Love and films like that. But um, yeah. but all three of them had such great affection, enduring affection. I mean, Spike used to go on about how it ruined his marriage and ruined, huh. his, ruined his mental health and all the rest of it. But I think deep down he was incredibly proud of it. I think I think the 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 agreed logic with with Sellers is, is that he always felt like it was his most successful thing, I mean most um, rewarding yes. project. Yes, right. Yeah. Because when he died, he just kept selling t- around the time he died, not when he died. That would have been awful. Mm. Uh, he kept selling sending telegrams to them both saying, "Let's do it again. Let's do it again." That's right. Because he was constantly trying to get that magic back that the films weren't giving him. And also his health. His health wasn't giving him any kind of satisfaction either because every time he'd exert himself, he'd have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I think this is a very important project that they all did. And it's a bit like they were the Beatles of comedy in a way. Yeah. Um, because George Harrison always said that there was a mojo that travelled through the 20th century that started with the goons, then went to Python, then went... No, so goons, Beatles, then Python. Yes. It was that kind of groundbreaking energy that they had. So it must have been a very, very exciting thing to do. And yes, I know Spike nearly died doing and quite often, you know, there were quite a few episodes he didn't write. Mm. Eric Sykes stepping in to write scripts occasionally. And Larry Stevens. And Larry Stevens, yeah, Yeah. because when Spike was unwell. So it was a real... It's it's weird because it's radio and the BBC were just like, okay, we've recorded that, right, take it out of the back and delete it. Yeah. Um, We don't know... We don't know the full story. It's all. I mean, I mean, I was just looking on the internet just now, funnily enough, and I found the script of the episode we're talking about, mm. um, an auction house for how much was it? Um, Six hundred pounds. Um, so those sort of things are so rare, and and it's one of those things that's kind of been diluted with time, and to to an extent that I think Python have as well. Mm. Like you can buy the Python scripts, but there's very little information about who wrote what and who did what. And if you take that back into the goons, there's even less information because uh, it's just seen as this. Oh well, it was Seacom, Milligan, and Sellers. But obviously, you had the Benteen period as well, who was sort of the Pete Best of the goons. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Except he went on to do something. Yeah, and he and he, um, and he left willingly, as far as we know. Yeah, mm. I think he was. From what I can understand, I think he was well aware that he was a bit of a. I want to say fourth wheel, but that seems... I know mm. that sounds wrong, but in a goon sense, that makes sense. Fifth wheel? That would do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, they really found their feet when he left. Yes. Because what was it the BBC wanted to call them? Oh, uh, well, it was a junior junior crazy gang, mm. and then it was crazy people. For, crazy the, people for, the first, for the first series, it was crazy people featuring the goons. And then, and then and, when they, they changed it to the goon show, someone at the BBC said they... They thought it was the Go On show. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, oh. Incredibly uh, dry, desiccated, humorless BBC management, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just just circling back to Bond for, for, for a moment. Um, what do you think of Casino Royale, the 67 Casino Royale? Uh, I think it's an exact product of what it is in that it's got, what, seven directors? That's right. Or something like that. It's yeah. got... Something like that. It's got um, Peter Sellers decide suddenly deciding he wanted to be a leading man when he was clearly employed to be in a comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, having hissy fits, not wanting to work with certain people, 
disappearing, eventually getting fired or leaving, one of the two. Um, and then people coming in to try and sort of, in like a Wallace and Gromit fashion, build the track as you're going along. <laughs> yes. And then when it come, when you get to the end, when you actually watch the finished product, it's just, uh, it's just all over the place. It's got, it's got, it's, it's fun. It's got Ronnie Corbett in it. Yeah, it's got Ronnie Corbett. It's got um, Mrs. Monroe from Grange Hills in it. Yeah, it's got Woody Allen in it. It's got um, Peter, Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole. Um, you've got um, God. What's his name? John Houston doing a mm. ah band doing his Irish <laughs> accent for some reason. Uh, it's it's very good. I mean, David Niven saves it. Mm. I think if it weren't for David Niven, it would be a bit harder to watch. But it captures that British cool thing that was going on at the time quite nicely. Sellers is it's slimmed down and you know I suppose conventionally good looking man in his own right, but you know, he wasn't cut out to be a Cary Grant kind of kind no, of actor. But he was ahead of his time in a way because not many comedians or character actors in inverted commas were as versatile as he was in terms of they could deliver you a Clouseau, but then the next film they could give you a Hoffman. That's right. Where he is yeah. just he he always said that he doesn't like it because it's the closest to his real personality, mm. which is a bit worrying. But it's just a very very lovely little character piece, and he's so good in it. He he just is, he he shows everything. He's so vulnerable in it. Yeah. But at the same time, a couple of years later, he's just as a telephone repairman driving a three wheel car into a swimming pool <laughs> with um, with David Lodge in that in with that, David Lodge in again, that sequence. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, Hoffman's coming out on Blu-ray very soon, apparently. I know. I wrote the essay notes for it. Oh. Yeah. I look forward to reading that. Excellent. Yes. When yes. is it coming out? Do you know? January. Right. Cool. I don't know the exact date, but it's on the Indicator website. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, that's my favorite Sellers film, just because it's the closest to the real man, I think. I think everything. He always, you know, there's always pin, point to that Muppets quote, which is obviously supposed to be a joke, but it does feel yeah. true. Where he says, you know, there isn't a real me who had it surgically removed. Um, I think he was very. I think he knew that he was a flawed person deep down, and he didn't want to show that too much. So that's why he was doing these, hiding behind makeup or hiding behind these wacky characters. But I think in Hoffman, he does let his guard down because. I guess he just felt like it at the time, but it's just a really interesting performance. Well, he didn't have a lot else going on at that time in terms of success, in terms of successful no. films. So His seventies he... period. I mean, if you just discount the Pink Panther, which is like a franchise thing, yeah. His seventies period is quite depressing if you look down it, and also tragic because the last big film he did was Being There, which is, you know, this this lovely little sensitive film, and then he, in typical Sellers fashion. <laughs> Much like Eddie Murphy did with Dreamgirls, he then follows it up with the fiendish plot of Doctor Fu Manchu, which is unwatchable. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, Eddie Murphy did Norbit, obviously, but they're very similar in the fact that in Fu Manchu he's playing two parts badly yeah. as well. I mean, he just and that's the thing about him, and we, we'll we'll talk about it, I'm sure. But his heart—I know this is turning to Peter Sellers' podcast. That's, that's fine. Yeah, his heart problems, I just think they just horrendously aged him. Because if you look at the... He does an interview with Gene Shalit in 1980 or 79. What, what an afro that guy's got. Oh, what, what an afro. He just looks <laughs> like he's put his head through a bush. I described it as um, it's like he's got a, a small black bear cub on his head. 
Mm-hmm. It's just it's sort of just curled around. Or nestling under his nose to get <laughs> amber. Um, but yeah, he's talking to Sellers, and Sellers looks like he's about 74 years old. Yeah. But he's about 53. So you're both Academy Award nominees. Yes. Have you your speech prepared? Oh. And I'm the not. winner is Peter Sellers. What are you going to say? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going there. Oh, you're not? No, no. No. I've got, uh, I'm cutting this thing, you see. Fu Manchu. Right. And it's so, your new movie, is Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu. And you're editing it now. Yes. First time you ever directed a Chinese movie? It is, and I'm eating a lot of food right now, Chinese <laughs> food to get into it. So, yeah, today we are talking about, um, so I asked you, you know, if, if there was a particular goon show that you were interested in, in focusing yes. on. And you asked to talk about the case of the missing CD plates. Yes. So why that one in particular? That was one that I just kept listening to when I was a kid. Um, it was on one of my dad's records, and there's just bits in it. I love corpsing. There's a beautiful corpsing there section is. in this. Yep. I, when I was a kid, I found the idea of sped up things very funny. Mm-hmm. There are the bits in this where they cut to um, they cut to a tea house in Saigon. It was a, there's a tea house in Saigon. There's a stench yeah. packing factory in Saigon. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And a, a, a notorious fish shop in Barry School in Yoshiwara. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I just love those. Bits. And also, there is my one of my favourite things ever, which is you have the announcer doing a line. Like I know he does a line quite often. I don't mean cocaine, kids. Mm. I mean he does a silly no- noise line because there's a running joke in this where they say, "Pst, tick, vung." Mm. And Greenslade says it, but he says it in the campest way possible. And that's what causes, I think it's about, probably about 30 seconds of corpsing. And you can hear the audience just roaring with laughter. And I like to think that they played that at Greenslade's funeral. Well, he only died a couple, well, about five years after this. He died. Now, you can clear this up for me, and I don't mean literally. Yeah, I know what you're going to say. Go on. He died on the toilet, didn't he? Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the story, yeah. In a public toilet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, there's very little information out there about Wallace Greenslade, no. even to this day. Yeah. Just he's a rather large gentleman with a with a nice voice. Yeah, who one day was walking along and thought, "I'm going to nip in for a <laughs> for a, uh, a, a sit down loo." He's going to take his ease. Yeah, he's going to take the weight off his feet, mm. and you know, call the shipping line. And, um, <laughs> And then, yeah, and then died. That's that's the story. Now, when I checked Wikipedia earlier, it didn't mention it, but I remember reading it on Wikipedia, so I'm wondering if maybe someone just put that in there. I don't know. I've been aware of that since I was, because I was into the goons from the late 80s when I was 14. I must have picked it up from somewhere. So it must be true. Um, I'd like to know. I mean, there, there will be people listening to this who probably know more than, than we do. So Could uh, you, if you are listening to this and you do know, could you hashtag answer me a question? So hashtag, did he go? <laughs> or you could hashtag, only halfway out. No. <laughs> or didn't, you know, didn't go. Hashtag one of those three, I'd be, I'd appreciate it. Because yeah. I'd like to, I, mean, I, know it's, I know it's a disgusting thing to think about, but he was a, very, a man dear to my heart. I'd like to know that he went satisfied hmm. rather than frustrated. I don't yeah. think it, I think he he'd had a great well he'd had a great six years before his yeah because he was he was very much like your starchy BBC announcer wasn't he and then he got pulled in here yeah and then you get to this point of the the run and I'm not I couldn't 100 percent tell you what series this is is it series six 
Series 6, there we go. So mm-hmm. Series 6, he's very much at home, isn't he? Yeah. Well, to he... the point where he even says, Pust tick vung. <laughs> he, he almost corpses towards the end, doesn't he? Does. he? Um, yes. Uh, he's not a bad actor. I mean, he's, he's never going to win any awards. But he's... I think he's there to be starchy and not very not as good as everybody else, and I think he does it perfectly. Yeah. Wallace Greenslade, perfect for this show. Yeah. We return you now to where we left off. Pst, tick, <laughs> vang. <laughs> fine, fine, fine. <laughs> Dear listener, I realised I had them. So, so the, the case of the missing CD plates, it is, mm. uh, I didn't write it down. I think it's show five from series six, uh, 18th of October, 1955. It went out um, on the home service. Now, one thing, because I have listened to a, a couple of your wheezing, groaning sounds episodes. Yes. Okay. Uh, one thing that I've, I've picked up on is that Paul tends to talk about what was on the tally. Yeah whenever that specific Doctor Who episode went out. Yes. So what I did was I just had a look at what was on the tally and also what Mm -hmm. was on um, the light program. The wireless. Yeah. Mm. Um, On the home service before the Goon Show or a couple of, you know, hours before this Goon Show episode, yeah, Jimmy Clitheroe, because of course she did. Because I think he was, was, I think he was on the radio every single day in the 50s. So this was the 18th of October, 1955. Yes. Yes. In fact, so what we... Do you know what? I just just realised it's to the day. <gasps> oh my goodness! We, we are recording what are the this. Chances? We are recording this on the eighteenth of October, two thousand and twenty-one, and I don't have my calculator. But what is that? That's um, hmm. six, sixty-six, sixty-seven years, something like that. That's more than that. No. No. Well, hang on. Right. I'm doing. I'm taking my shoes and socks off. <laughs> That's forty-five years to the year two thousand. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I'm right with what? 66 or 67? 66, 66. 66 years ago to the day. Oh. Okay. Right, so you had Jimmy Clitheroe, of course, and then on the, on the light program, you had Nelson Elms at the organ. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Bit risque for those days. Yeah, you had Have a Go with Wilfred Pickles, and you had Take It From Here. Nice. Uh, oh. Now, on ITV, because ITV had only been going literally about a month. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and it was... Um, I'm a celebrity. Yeah. Um, Housewives of Cheshire. Um, yeah. It was um, there were two shows that I picked up which intrigued yeah. me, which the titles intrigued me. And all I've got, oh, are the, yeah. all I've got are the titles, and I've tried to do a little bit of research, but there's nothing out there. Uh, what, one show was one show was called "Are Husbands Really Necessary?" Oh, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure the, the the conclusion they reach is yes. Yeah, I'm sure it was a three second program. <laughs> Good night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there was another show which the title alone just makes my flips my wig. Uh, the high flying head. Nice. Yeah. Um, I imagine that's about a flying headmaster. Yeah. I wasn't going to go rude, like you said, because I'm aware we've got sensitive listeners, but mm. I'm imagining it's like the flying nun, but it's a headmaster. It's like wacko, but he can fly. <laughs> Would it be played by a young Michael Shared? 
or a young Jimmy Edwards who could use his moustache as a sort of <laughs> yeah. propeller. Propeller, yeah. 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 Um, on BBC TV, because it was only the one the one channel on BBC, mm. there was there was uh, two films about cats, apparently, according to the... So it was the early form of the internet, right? Good. Yeah. And, and Great Scott, it's Maynard. Oh, wonderful. Is that Bill Maynard? That's Bill Maynard and um, that mm. incredible lefty, Terry Scott. Mm. Blimey. Mm. <clears throat> I imagine that wasn't the driest show on earth. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they had red faces. Well, I think Bill Maynard, I live in Worthing now. Yes. And there's a theatre in Worthing called the Connaught. Uh-huh. And pre or post-war, I can't remember which, Bill Maynard was the um, sort of entertainment director there. Right. So I do think of old Bill every time I go there to watch a film or something. Well, he was a... He was a rum old dog. I didn't realise this because oh. he, <clears throat> again, it's just you know slightly lowering the tone here. Hmm. But the legend is that he he lost his virginity when he was eleven to a circus contortionist in the back of a Morris Eight. Hi. <laughs> Apparently, she was in the boot. Um, he had also he had. <laughs> Uh, he liked to put it about. He had his own code yeah. of crumpet ethics. <laughs> okay. Um, he never did it on his own doorstep, right? He never gave presents. Okay. He never sent flowers. Um, and if <laughs> and if whoever he was with wanted to go for a, to a posh restaurant, she had to pay for it. <laughs> Sweet. Um, and they always went back to hers. Of course. Uh, Probably because he had a wife at home. <laughs> what a gentleman. <laughs> And then he later on appeared in Adrian Mole as Burt Baxter. I always think of him as the, uh, in Carry On at Your Convenience, as Joan Sims's husband. Do you know the, do you know the one? Yes, I do. Yeah, he's the uptight one. I've just realised I've got him confused with someone else, so ignore what I said about Adrian Mole. Oh, who was it then? Bill Fraser. Oh, uh, okay. So yeah. ignore what I said about Worthing and... <laughs> oh, all that was Duff information. All that. Right, Your okay. Duff information. I got bills. I got my bills mixed up. Hmm. Anyway, we've we've again we've sort of strayed off into it's the yeah. Bill, Bill Maynard podcast now, hmm. uh, but but here here here's the most important fact: the uh, top of the hit parade, the week this went yep. out was was by Jimmy Young, okay, Excellent. and it was yep. the it was the man from Laramie, ah, oh, which features in this episode, yeah, absolutely, the man from Laramie, <laughs> yeah. The man from Laramie, he was a man. Which I believe, I've, I've heard it was a film, The Man from Laramie, and I'm guessing it's the theme tune. I always from... assume so. I mean, I never sort of went and dug it out. There's quite a few of these old radio shows that I'm very familiar with, where they sing a song which I assume is in the hit parade or from a film. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's one of them. I always, when I was, I always think of The Man from Laramie. Yeah. And I always think of, whenever I hear Laramie now, I think of The Simpsons, Laramie Cigarettes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, I made that connection in my head just now, and I didn't re- remember why. There yeah. you go. Thank you. Um, okay, so hmm. case of the missing CD plates, it was, it, you said your dad had it on an LP. It would have been um, yes. Goon Show Classics number seven, which had the man who never was on the other side. Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, now, hmm. you, you said you are about six or seven when you were listening to these. Did you stick with them, or did you grow out of it quite quickly? No, I really stuck with them. So I used to like... I used to like just sitting there picturing everything that was happening in my head. Yeah. 
which is why I think when I eventually saw the um, Telegoons years later, oh, yeah. it was very disappointing because it was nothing like I'd imagined at all. But I, as a little kid, this was something that I think my dad was very careful in the fact that he just, I say careful, very ruthless in the fact that he programmed me to like this kind of comedy. Mm. Um, so with all the goon records that go on, but this one in particular, it just had lots of factors in it that just sparked my imagination. Mm. Like, you know, the way they used to play with the sound effects and everything, like the um, to show that the fire engine with the horse is slow enough, right? In mm. any other comedy, you'd be like, well, here comes the fire engine. <clears throat> it's a horse and cart. That's funny. But they've slowed the record down. So That's it's right. even slower. Yeah. Well, it's just little things like that. And I think it just really spoke to me, the goons, generally when I was that age, because it was just perfectly silly. If you don't mind, if you'll uh, bear with me. Because uh, the Radio Times, as it as it did back then, it had a synopsis for this particular show. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. Um, but it it does depart in some ways from the actual plot of the show. Okay. Yeah. And, and I'm not. Uh, I'd love to know exactly why this because this happened quite often with mm. the Radio Times synopses that they yeah. they would they would more or less be accurate, but there'd be there'd be a lot of sort of uh, sort of weird bits that don't feature in the show. Yes. Okay, so so it, I'll just read this out. It says, uh, uh, Nettie Seagoon, a rich young metal bagpipe player, is washing his overcoat in a brook in Trafalgar Square when he is mysteriously run over by a steamroller with CD plates. Nettie, always the opportunist, demands recompense from the Lake Wanstead Embassy, the owners of the vehicle who refuse to pay. On his way to a hearing of the case, Seagoon is mysteriously struck by a foreign piano also bearing CD plates. He reaches the court just in time to lose his deposit. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, Lake Wanstead Embassy because it's the Titicacan Embassy for a start yes Titicacan yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the piano didn't have CD plates on it no it was just a steamroller yeah and also a brook in Trafalgar Square yeah yeah yeah. unless that's what they called fountains in those days I don't Possibly. know mm. it does open in Trafalgar Square you've got Nady's taking a stroll through Trafalgar Square and yep. meets Bloodknock and what's Blood Bloodknock's just basically naked in the middle of London isn't he <laughs> It's one of my favourite exchanges in this, where he says, because um, he starts washing his coat in the in the, the fountain, mm. Neddy does, and then Bloodnock tells him off for doing that. In the most beautiful fountain in Trafalgar Square, you have the audacity and the audacity to wash an overcoat, thus fouling the water. You might have waited until I'd finished my bath. <laughs> yeah, he's basically naked in Trafalgar Square, and then he says, do you have a bath where you live? Yes, I do. Where do you live? Here. <laughs> again, a lovely joke. Yeah. Um, but again, it just just fires your imagination, doesn't it? There is a naked man in Trafalgar Square watching another man wash his coat. <laughs> <laughs> do you like pigeon pie? <laughs> <laughs> again, that's a line that's just always in my head. Yeah, yeah. This was one of the first ones I heard. Um, this was probably... There was this, there was the Phantom Head Shaver of Brighton. And uh-huh. uh, the first one I ever heard was The Last Smoking Seagoon, which was the last proper goon show from 1960. Oh, really? Uh, so I heard because... it sort of um, ask about face, if you know what I mean. Uh, but this this, this, and um, Phantom Head Shaver and a couple of others mm. were, were the first ones I heard. And I'd take them off the radio and I just played them again and again and again until the tape virtually you know, stretched or broke. Yeah. Um, and you yeah. listen to this. I used to listen to this one a lot, and um, the um, the one about the batter 
Hurler yeah. from Bexhill on C. Yeah, dreaded better putting Hurler of Bexhill on C. That's yeah. it. And that's another one that I used to have in rotation when I was little. Yes. Yeah. Again, that's a very sound effects heavy one as well with the noises and well, that's got the, yeah, that one has the famous story that accompanies it about the sound effects because um, <clears throat> Spike wanted the sound of someone being hit by a batter pudding. Hmm. Uh, so I think they tried the sound effects guys, you know, on the day of recording, hmm. they tried a few different things and they just, you know, Spike wasn't satisfied. So he went down to the canteen and took a sock off. Uh-huh. And handed it to the dinner lady or the the canteen lady, yeah. Um, and said, "You know, fill this full of custard." <laughs> <laughs> and then he tied a knot in it, took it back up, and hit it against a <clears throat> bit of wood, and he got the the sound he wanted. Bloody hell! <laughs> and Bexhill on Sea is where he was based, isn't it? Yes, it was, there. and I think mm. that's where Eddie Izzard grew up as yeah, well. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm. Uh, and I think Eddie Izzard. Possibly sort of because of that connection. I think that's what got Eddie into the goons and mm. Spike. But you've got, you've got Neddy getting, Neddy and his nickel-plated bagpipes getting mm-hmm. run over <laughs> soon after meeting Bloodknot. He gets run over yeah. by a steamroller driven by uh, Moriarty. Um, and my other favourite joke where he says, do you see what those plates say on the back there? CD. And then one of them says, corps blame. And he says, no, corps diplomatique. <laughs> Yeah, and he's got he claims diplomatic immunity from prosecution. Yeah, so uh, was, Lethal Weapon Two must have watched this. I've not seen that. Inspired. Oh, the the baddie in Lethal Weapon Two claims diplomatic immunity. Well, I was wondering. I was trying to do a bit of research on whether because Spike was often inspired. Yeah, because he had every week he had to come up with a new idea. If, if it was just yeah. him writing, and he was very often inspired by what was going on in the, in the news or you know um, current affairs. But so, yes, yeah, so Spike would often, yeah, he'd be looking for, for ideas. And I was wondering whether there was something in the news around this time about the abuse of diplomatic immunity or something. Probably, you know? yeah. Um, but I uh, couldn't find anything. Hmm. Um, by the way, the beginning of the show, sorry, I know we're sort of going all over the place, but the right, beginning, right. beginning of the show, right at the beginning, you've got a reference to uh, Baroness Orksy. Hmm. Did you know who she was? I didn't know. I just assumed it was a made-up name. Yeah, well, that's what I, that's what I used to think. And then hmm. um, I came to know her. She was fo- most famous for writing about the Scarlet Pimpernel. Ah. Um, I think she she sort of came up with the idea. I think she invented the Scarlet Pimpernel and wrote books about him. Hmm. Um, but, again, I, I tried to... I just thought that's a very opaque reference. That's a very mm. unusual. And I tried to find if there was anything in the news in September, October, 1955 about Baroness Orksy, but she died about a decade before. <laughs> oh, so you just don't know if it's just Spike, just plucking names out of the air, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So Ned, de- uh, Ned admits defeat. Um, Cause he can't, you know, he can't sue Moriarty. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, He's struck down by a falling pia- fallen piano. Yes. Um, which is dropped from the window of the Titicacan legation. That's right. Um, and you get the you get the introduction of Grip Pipe Thin. Yes, I really like Grip Pipe Thin. Um, when I was a kid, I loved Eccles. Yeah. Any scene with Eccles and Blue Bottle in was always my favourite as a kid, but as I've got older. 
I think Gridpipe and Moriarty are my favourites just because they're so... They're always the baddies, so that's always fun. Well, I... Um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree because I'm the same. Hmm. But but at this sort of period, mid-50s Goon Show, they still had a certain patina of respectability. Hmm. <laughs> um, they were, you know, they were scoundrels, but they, you hmm. know, they, they were quite, quite urbane and, and uh, rubbed shoulders with the right people. By the time you get to Series 9, they are the most, well, Moriarty in particular, the most abject wretch sharing, you know, sharing a suit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I love that. I absolutely love that. I love uh, that they could either be, sometimes they'd be the driver of the plot, like they'd get Neddy in and say, we need you to go and do this. Mm. Or they're quite often, it turns out, they're the people behind the whole plot. Um, yes. So I like the flexibility of that, that you're never quite sure. <clears throat> well, they're, they've always got evil intent, but you're never quite sure if they're the, the baddie in the end. Actually, I've just remembered my favourite character is Blood Knob. Oh, is it? Yes, because the catchphrase is like quick nurse the screens. And yeah. there's one episode, I can't, kind of, oh, I wish I could remember which one it is, but there's just end, there's this endless explosions going off. But every time there's an explosion, he's ah, ah, after each one. Yes. Well, yeah, because um, the explosions are, are flatulence. Yes, <laughs> Violent exactly. flatulence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, lo- I love, I just love his voice. It's just so funny. Have you ever seen the 1960 film, The League of Gentlemen? Yes. Um, I, I could see Bloodnock as one of those kind of characters, one of those former military men who have mm. sort of strayed from the from the course and they're down on their luck, you know? I would love to see The League of Gentlemen with Bloodnock in it. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great. <laughs> that heist at the end with him just going, hey. It's funny, you know, when you think, you just reminded me, when you think of the uh, Muckinese Battlehorn film, I don't know, it's not even a film, it's what, 15 minutes long? Uh, 25, something like that. 25, yeah. something like that. There's very, there's not many goon characters in it. Well, there's there's, uh, Minnie, there's and Henry. Minnie and Henry in Eccles. Minnie and Henry, yeah, yeah, mm. but I don't think you, he's not, there's no blood knock, there's no blue bottle. No, I don't think there is, no. And there's no Seacom either because it's Dick Emery, isn't it? And Dick Emery does the, you know, whack, whack, whack on me head voice that Sellers yeah, usually does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a very, odd, a very odd film. I wonder why they made it. It's a very strange little thing. I remember when I was a kid being so excited to watch it and being a bit disappointed because same with Zed Men, actually. I was quite disappointed with that as well. It's, it's better than Zed Men, I think. Oh, much better than Zed Men because it's got an actual plot. Yeah. Zedman feels like they're trying to do a um, Marx Brothers film, doesn't it? There's, yeah. there's a lady in it and everything and love interest and things. Well, the thing with that film is you've got three of them more or less appearing as characters in a 1952 low-budget British comedy film. Hmm. And you've got Michael Benteen, who's hmm. all, all hair and beard and wild Teeth. sort of gestures. It's like he's in a different yeah. film. He is, yeah. Um, he's trying to be, I don't know what he's trying to be. No. But um, no, Muckinese Battlehorns, are, I, think, I think you would say it's an interesting curio. It is, it is. It's just, it feels like why, it kind of feels like why make anything if it's not the full ticket, if you know what I mean. If you're not all there and you're not bringing the, the full goon show experience. Yeah. I'd, li- I'd like to know how it came about and... 
Who knows? You just reminded me because we were talking about Eccles and I just thought, I instantly thought of the fact that you see Eccles in Muckinese Battlehorn uh, yeah. with his magnifying glass. Well, a version of Eccles, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. The Eccles voice, anyway. Uh, anyway, and you, sorry. And you've got Eccles, Eccles turns up in this, of course, with um, somehow Seacombe, who's been, who's been squashed by a falling piano, has managed yep. to has managed to move it to, to a warehouse in Bond Street. With two night watchmen. Uh, with two night watchmen played by uh, Eccles and Blue Bottle. Which is uh, good being a night watchman because it's like being a day watchman, but it's at night. It's in the dark. Yeah, <laughs> fine, fine, fine. Uh, and, yeah, you have that great little... That's the thing. With so many of these episodes around this time, you'd have two or three minutes of Eccles and Blue Bottle just having a bit of crosstalk. Yeah, um, and and Eccles again, you know, always seems slightly removed from it. Mm-hmm. He's, he's just mm-hmm. nodding along, and and Blue Bottle's the one who's who's keeping the conversation going. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 genuinely, as is his character, genuinely curious about the world, and has because he's childlike, he's just got endless questions. And I I bloody love the story of how they got the Blue Bottle character, though it's so good. Yes, um, what is he called? Ruxton Haywood. Haywood, yeah. Uh, basically, Ben is it? He said Bentine came in and said you have to come and meet this person. So, the, well, the story is, and I'm not quite sure. It's kind of been retold by different mm. people, but essentially, I think Bentine was appearing in some theatre in the early '50s, mm. and Ruxton Haywood sort of went to his dressing room or met him after the show and introduced himself and mm. and um, said that he wanted to join the goons. Because mm. you know the sort of thing you did back then, mm-hmm. you liked a comedy show, you asked to join, and he had this funny little sing-song voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, big, well, he sounds he was, exactly like Blue Bottle. Yeah, he was. He was like yeah. I don't know, six foot tall with a big red beard and a scout leader's outfit on. Yeah. And Bentine said, "Oh, I think you're a genius. Uh, why don't you go yeah. and see Peter Sellers?" Because uh, <laughs> he and sent him off, so he, he rode across town to wherever Peter Sellers was appearing. Yeah. In Variety. Mm-hmm. And uh, knocked on the dressing room door and said, um, "I've just, uh, I've just seen Michael Benteen, and he said that I'm a genius." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Sellers obviously uh, purloined the voice for Blue yeah. Model. Yeah, he, I think he's on. It's it's on a chat show where Sellers tells the story, but he does all the voices. Yes, and yeah. it's just oh my god, it's so funny. But, the, he, well, it, but sorry, you you were going to say something. I was just going to say that Ruxton had a little career of his own didn't he He did loads of weird variety shows did he yeah if you look him up on youtube um there's footage of him on a talent show right um coming out and doing a very odd act like doing what oh i can't remember now i think it's just weird stuff but he's still in the scouts outfit even when he's an old man he's not naked with balloons in front of his privates no no no, no, thank god he's not no (laughs) I don't want to see his blue balls. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Uh, well, this is me. <laughs> <laughs> I am being myself. Right. People find myself amusing. So I let them. If I wanted yeah. to be serious, I wouldn't know how. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's just a great story. I love I love these Genesis stories about how these characters came to be and stuff. And Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. So Eccles and Blue Bottle are there to see Neddy under the piano. And, and Neddy. The fire brigade. 
that's right because we get Minnie and Henry as the um, what are they? I'll, I'll just have a look at me. They are members of the East Acton Volunteer Auxiliary Civilian Fire Force. And where uh, are the rest of them? They're at the um, Fire Safety Week dinner. Yeah. Which is on fire. <laughs> Which is in a building across the street on fire. The echo started so to justify the fire brigade being there. <laughs> I better start a fire if they're coming. Yeah. But Ned's got this explodable cucumber. Ooh, uh. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is the thing. I mean, there is a plot to this show. Mm. And, and, you know, as the shows went on, as they got more wilder and wackier, plot went out the window. But, you know, this has got a, a plot of type. So uh, Ned's going to sue uh, Grip Pipe and Moriarty for £50,000 because of the piano hitting mm. him. Um, but Grip Pipe says, no, it, it, it had a, a CD plate on it. So, you know, diplomatic mm-hmm. immunity and Segan says, no, it doesn't. Yeah. And then, and then Grip Pipe, you know, the next breath basically says, look, I want you to take this little metal plate and screw mm. it onto something, an object, a large object in the dark, and I'll give you £40,000. Uh, and here's a, a cucumber. You know, you've got to eat. Little does this poor idiot know that inside the cucumber is a powerful infernal machine timed to explode the moment it detonates and to blow him to perdition when he has completed his task. Exits humming. Ned, obviously, you know, passes this job, this task onto Blue Bottle, who goes and screws the plate on and then eats the cucumber and gets blown to buggery. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the show pretty much ends. Neddy's on his up. Neddy's lost the court case and ends up, he travels to Titicaca for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, his former legal advisor, uh, the, the naked man in Trafalgar Square, Dennis Bloodnock, yeah. uh, uh, runs him over with, with a straight uh, steamroller. That's right. Tied up like a neat little package, as Homer Simpson like would George say. Lucas says, it's poetry, it has to rhyme. Hmm. <laughs> um, you've also got my line and another line I liked in this I had to write down with Grip Pipe says to Neddy how would you like the £40,000 and Segan says in money <laughs> you drive a hard bargain <laughs> oh that's wonderful imagine the goon show without Segan yeah I know I mean you could when I was a kid sometimes he'd get on my nerves a little bit because he's he's very like he only does one thing, but then you realise he is literally the glue holding the whole thing together. Mm-hmm. Without him and Greenslade, it'd just be it'd just be a mess. It really would. Well, you'd you'd have Sullers and Milligan, best of friends, at the beginning of the recording session, and by the end of it, they'd be probably rolling around on the floor. Well, one would try and stab one, and the other one would put them in his car boot and drive him around London. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to tell that story in case people haven't heard it? Oh, if you haven't heard this story, this that Sellers picks up Milligan, well, phones Milligan and says, I want I need you to help me. And he brings, he comes to his house in the middle of the night and says, I, I'm hearing an odd noise in my car boot. Would you mind getting in while I drive around? Mm. So he puts him in the car boot and drives him around London. And if I remember rightly, it was, there wasn't, there wasn't a noise. And then he just said, oh, okay. Well, he gave him a bit of chalk, didn't he? And said, um, oh, that's right. And yeah, make a mark where the noise is coming from. Yeah, every time you hear it, a squeak or whatever, just make a mark where you think it's coming from. Hmm. Um, and then some Milligan's in this boot, and it's complete pitch black. And Sellers is going over lots of speed bumps or whatever they hmm. had in, you know, the 1950s. Yeah. And then next thing, the car pulls up. Yeah. Um, crunch of footsteps on gravel. And the boot is open and there's like a policeman with a torch and he shines it oh, in. that's right, yeah. Shines it in on Milligan's face and just says, oh, it's you. 
<laughs> and then the other thing I mentioned there, if you didn't know about that, it was the time that Spike Milligan tried to kill Peter Sellers with a knife. A potato peeler, wasn't it? Fruit was knife. it a potato peeler? Something yeah. like that, yeah. Well, he walked through his plate glass window, door, mm. Mm. like he had one of those <clears throat> 1950s doors that was a, an apartment. It was just a giant plate glass thing, and he walked through it mm. and said, I must kill Peter Sellers. <laughs> Yeah, they had a they had a very interesting relationship. Those yeah, two, very interesting relationship. But then, like we said at the beginning, you know, towards the end of his life, Sellers saw this as the best time of his life. Yeah, are you interested in the career of Peter Cushing by any chance? Yes. So, I sent you the the well the the, the fullest version of this show available of mm. the CD plates, which yeah has has a has a few little bits restored that were cut out of you know the LP version and whatnot. There's a very brief line where Ned's told uh, Blue Bottle that he has to go and do this task, you know, screw this plate onto this object. Yeah. And and Blue Bottle said, "What is the reward, Capitan?" I'll I'll play you know I'll play the clip. This lovely green succulent prize-winning cucumber. Oh, giddy! What prize did it win? Best Supporting Television Actor of 1955. <laughs> oh, Peter Kunschling. And I just thought, okay, so, so I thought, so I immediately thought, okay, it must be, he must have won that award for 1984, which he... I was just thinking was that, yeah. But then I thought, Best Supporting Television mm. Actor. That doesn't make sense. Uh, so I did, I, I, again, I spent probably the best part of an hour, mm. you know, and, and I even asked people on Twitter, so I asked, you know, is there any award that he won at the time in about 55 where it was Best Supporting Television Actor? And apparently that category didn't exist back then. Oh, wow. So I don't know, you know, a little, throw, a little throwaway line, but I don't know, again, you don't know what was happening, what was in the, you know, what people were talking about at the time. No, no. It might have been that Peter Cushing was, because he didn't give a bad performance in 1984. No. Um, because because the the, you know, the inference is that you know a cucumber uh, oh. would do it would make a better job, um, yeah. so anyway it's it's things like that that just fascinate me and make me yeah. disappear down rabbit holes for hours. Oh, it always fascinates me that you you know you know you've the last goon show of all, mm. which you know isn't the greatest, and is it the tale of men's shirts was the other video version they, the film version they did with John Cleese's yeah that's right. There's very little. Media, and I know it's difficult because it's the fifties, but they ne- did they they never actually filmed one, did they? Well, no, but you know, Sellers had his a his real sort of thing. yeah, he was mad yeah. on technology and gadgets, and mm. yeah, and he would film everything, or he would get someone to film him doing something. Yeah, because there's like a tiny clip of them at the microphones, isn't there, recording it? But there's no sound or anything. That's right, and and yeah. and it's probably from about the late. Or sort of probably 57, 58, maybe that sort of period. Yeah. And and I've uh, uh, I've said before, I'd love a lip reader to identify what it is they're saying in that little mm. clip, because then you, then you could match up the actual audio. But um, there is there is footage of film footage of them performing the goons in the early days, sort of with Benting, you know. But that's that's about it. Because um, you know, next best thing I'd love to have been. Well, actually, the best thing the video would be the next best thing. But I'd love to have been in. The audience for one of these one night mm. you'd think that some enterprising soul could have just mm. you know filmed a bunch of them mm. e- even just for posterity's sake not yeah. for any commercial gain uh you'd, you'd think somebody would have done that but uh it's a shame 
Yes, but I suppose you've got the audio of it, the ones they hadn't deleted. Because you get a little taster of it, but then in the last Goon Show of all, most of that I always imagined was... Um, staged. Staged. Staged corpsing, yeah, because Sellers... Yeah. He's, Sellers is quite annoying in the last Goon Show of all, I found. I feel like he's really not being very natural. No. I feel like everyone else is being very natural, but Sellers is playing to the audience in a way that you don't really hear in the shows. Very good point, actually, yeah. yeah. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Because um, the grovelling little bastard was there that night, wasn't he? Well, no, he wasn't. Oh, no, he wasn't. Um, Prince Philip was, wasn't he? And, and uh, what's the name? What's the name? Nafoff. Um, what was the name? Princess Anne. Um, <laughs> but it's 50 years old that next year, you know. Bloody um, hell. It was, it's a bit of a shambles, but it's an interesting shambles. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's, it's a document of a goon show. Yeah. It's. I certainly prefer it over the Taylorman's shirts, which is mm-hmm. just very filmed in a studio and there's no life to it. No. At least they are reacting to an audience. But uh, if I was one of the goons that night, I mean, I probably wouldn't have cared, but I'd have probably been a bit like wanting to say to Sellers, just calm down a bit, you know. Yes. I had a worry that I was going to go back and listen to this and it wasn't going to have that same magic. Because I know I certainly grew out of them at an age and couldn't listen to them anymore, but I was listening to them a lot. But it had the same magic for me. And I just think this show is very special to me because it's one I listen to a lot. But it's also got, as I said earlier, it's got the corpsing, it's got the sped-up music. Mm. Um, it's just got a lovely little... It's a lovely little example of prime goons. Yes. If you wanted to get someone into the goons, this would be a good episode to be a starter for them. because it's, It would, yeah. It's got everything in it. The only thing that's missing is Little Jim, but I think that's a good thing. Yeah, he was a few years later he came along. He was, and he, that felt like to me like a cheap laugh. I never liked Little Jim. They even do it in the last Goose Show of All, where they get Milligan oh, to yeah. say he's four in the water, and then they all... Uh, Sellers does that annoying, Ray thing. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, he's because so, he's, he's, he's signalling to his royal friends and the audience. Almost. Mm. It's like... Um, yeah, Little Jim was quite a cynical attempt to engineer a catchphrase. Mm-hmm. But I think this is definitely like the sweet spot period of the goons. Where yes. They've really got it as, as a perfect working engine. Absolutely. Uh, purring along lovely. And then from this period, I'm guessing a couple of years later, it starts to, particularly when Little Jim comes in and things like that, it starts to fall apart a bit. Yeah, so it's Little Jim's from late Series 7. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say Series 8, is when the wheels start to come off a little bit. Although there's some really strong shows in series eight and series nine actually got some really strong shows, but there's a lot of, dare I say, laziness. Yeah. It's uh, crept in. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much for, for joining me to talk about the goons. And we talked about you know, a hell of a lot and yeah, uh, it's, it's been terrific. Um, so yeah. So as you say, Exploder book is, it's going to be out uh, imminently. Yep. What about SmirchPod? What's coming up on on SmirchPod? Uh, I have to finish this series. I've just I, I I had a period during lockdown where I was at the same time I was writing a book. I was sort of managing three to four podcasts at once. Yeah. And once the book was out and I'd finished all the all the bits you need to get finished to get it out and edited and proofread and all that business, I just thought I need to not do anything for a little bit. So <clears throat> I put a smash pod out a bit ago and I'm going to at some point talk about No Time to Die, but I just really want to have a little rest from it, 
from talking. Uh, I've really enjoyed doing this podcast. Thank you very much. Oh, um, to talk about something that uh, I am very enthusiastic about, but rarely get the chance to talk about. Mm. Um, so thank you. No, thank you very much. And, you know, maybe, maybe I won't, you know, I won't hold you to it, but maybe one day in the future, you can come back and talk about a Sellers film. Love um, to, yeah. So all the best with the book. And um, thanks again. You're welcome. And remember to all buy Hoffman. Oh, yes, Hoffman, of course. So, so they'll ask me to come back and do more. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to John. Uh, John's actually the first guest who um, asked for a request. Um, just there at the end as we were finishing, he said um, he asked if I would include the Spike song, I've Got a Photograph of You, um, right at the end of this recording because it's sung that uh, he's very fond of and his dad is fond of as well. I think uh, it means a lot to his dad. So... I will uh, say goodbye now. Uh, Thank you for listening. Take care. And until the next time, please enjoy The Strains of Milligan. I got that photograph of you. It's in my head. And it won't ever fade away. My eyes, they took a snap of you. My heart said, photograph, please don't laugh, I love you. Ooh, I didn't need a darkroom to develop all my love for you. How could one tiny negative turn out so positive? I know that photograph of you has had its day for the moment you said, won't you love me instead? It was Just said, won't you know?